good to, uh, to be with you all here this morning. And, uh, oh, sorry for that noise. Did not mean to do that. I know, too, that if you have any prayer requests that you uh, weren't able to share just now, uh, we'd still love to be able to pray for you. And so you'll also notice those blue cards in your, in your uh, bulletins have an opportunity for you to share prayer requests there. We have a spiritual life and care team here at Stony Brook that meets on a, a weekly basis to bring these prayer requests forward. And so we'd love to be able to do that for you, even if you weren't able to share. And again, it's good to gather together, and it's good to worship together, and it's good to dig deeper into God's Word, which is what we are going to be about. And we, we kicked off our sermon series last week on Revelation, and, uh, and it's been really a lot of fun for me as a pastor to go in and to study, but, but this has been what started out as maybe a fun intellectual endeavor. It's like, oh, I get to learn so much more about this book and read all these commentaries, and I'm a, yeah, I'm a bit of a nerd, yeah, that's true. Uh, this week... Uh, especially, just struck me as a deeply profound spiritual truth, something that meant something to my soul. Um, and so my hope is that as we encounter that same passage together, that the Spirit may be present with you and do much the same thing, to reveal this truth. Because one of the things that we get from Revelation is this message that things are not always as they seem. Things are not always as they seem. We have a few examples of this well known to us. We have a phrase, the the tip of the iceberg, because we know that if you see an iceberg floating in the ocean, the tip of it is only really a fraction of the actual size of that iceberg, which is submerged beneath the water and the waves. We can't always see it, but we know that it's there. Things are not always as they seem. It also reminds me of a, a scene from Lord of the Rings. And in this scene, the Fellowship of the Ring is battling a bunch of vicious orcs in the mines of Moria. And yes, I know exactly how nerdy this makes me sound. I'm okay with it. And so they're having this battle in the mines of Moria, and in the battle, the, the protagonist, Frodo, gets skewered by the spear, and everyone thinks that he should be dead. But when they find him after the battle, he's sitting there breathing and bruised, but completely unbroken. They're like, how can this be? That should have killed you. And then Gandalf the wizard says, there is more to this hobbit than meets the eye. And then Frodo reveals that underneath his traveling clothes, he actually has some armor made of, the, of mithril, which in Tolkien's universe is the strongest material that could ever be found. See, there was more to Frodo than meets the eye. Things are not always as they seem. And part of the great hope of Revelation is, is that when the world around us seems to give us one message and we see the evidence of some things, that, that the hope of Revelation is that that is not the complete picture. There is more than meets the eye. Things are not always as they seem. For those that received this letter originally, their situation, all the evidence that they could see was incredibly dire. The battle seemed lost. Chaos reigned. Hope was far away and everything seemed out of control. They were persecuted. They were being hunted. It looked like Christians were going to be exterminated. And that's not even hyperbole or an exaggeration. That is what it truly looked like. The Roman Empire would win, Christianity would lose, it's all been for naught. I'm sure many of them were drawn back to Psalm 11, 3 to 4, which says this, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Then there's an answer. The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord is on his heavenly throne. The vision of the throne room in, in Revelation 4 and 5 is perhaps the most important vision of this entire book. So I'm glad you're here today. And I pray that you're here with, with arms wide open to receive the message that God has for you because, because the, the veil is parted 
and we get a glimpse of what is truly going on, that things are not what they seem. And the whole rest of the book of Revelation hinges on what we find in Revelation 4 and 5. Because things are not what they seem. Chaos and evil has not won. God is on his throne. Let's pray together before we go any further. God, you are worthy of honor and praise and glory. You are on your throne. And already, in, in word and in song, we have, we have proclaimed these things to be true. And we do so because you have revealed these things to be true. And as we look at what you have revealed, as we look at the glimpse of this true reality that you have given us, God, I pray that it would meet us in a very real part of our soul. That wherever chaos and doubt reign in our heart, that we would still cling to the promise, the reality that you are on your throne. God, I pray that this would make a profound difference, not just in our trust and relationship to you, but how we point other people to you as well. We ask for your spirit to guide us into these words of truth. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So you can feel free to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. And we're going to look at chapters 4 and 5 together because truly they belong together. Uh, They are two sides of a coin, uh, two visions that are connected. And at the end of each one of these visions that belong together, there is a song of praise that, is, that is, represents the high point of each one of these passages. And so I'm going to start by pointing to or bringing our attention to these songs of praise at the end of each one of these chapters, and then we're going to go back and look at the visions in their entirety. So Revelation chapter 4 ends with this song of praise. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. So we have this praise that God is worthy. But why is he worthy? Well, the song answers that question as well. He is worthy of glory and honor and power because he created. He created all things. And so for us to understand best what's going on in Revelation 4, we need to know that creation is at the very heart of this. We are getting a glimpse into God's heavenly throne room, but creation is at the heart of what is going on. God is enthroned, and he is deeply aware of and interested in all that he has created and holds together. Now, not only does God hold everything together by his will, but there is this will that God has for the rest of creation. He has a purpose. He has a plan. He has an end goal. And while that is is referenced in 4.11, it's not answered. We have an open question. So God is worthy of praise because he has created, he has this will for creation, but what is it? And when we go to the high point of Revelation 5, we see the answer to that question. John writes, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So, Revelation 4 says God is worthy to be praised because he created and he has a plan and purpose for creation. And Revelation 5 says his plan and purpose is that all of that creation would worship him in spirit and in truth, in fullness and in presence and perfection for all eternity. That's the end. That's the goal. That's God's plan and will. But how can this be? Because certainly, for those who would read this the first time, things did not appear to be headed this way. 
That's not the direction that God's creation appears to be going at all. In fact, the exact opposite seems to be true. But the throne room vision answers the question of how we get from the worship song in Revelation 4.11, God is worthy of praise because he has created, to the worship song in 5.13, where all of creation joins perfectly in that song of praise. And if we're thinking time-wise, Revelation 4 is a song that has been sung ever since Genesis 1. This has been sung for a long time. It is being sung even now. And in Revelation 5, we get a glimpse of that perfect future, of the new heaven and the new earth as God intends it to be. One song is being sung now. The other song will be sung in the future. And what happens in between changes everything. And that's where we go to the chapters and to the visions themselves. The Apostle John, who we established to be the most likely author of this book and receiver of these visions, is given a glimpse into the heavenly reality. He is, again, worshiping. And then God is giving him these visions. And, and, he, and God says, you might see something going on in the world around you, but there is more going on that you can't see, and I will give you a look. Things are not always as they seem. This is the look that John received. Let's read Revelation 4 together. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on those thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the, th uh, <laughs> the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And isn't it great that we were able for just a moment to join in that song of praise today? And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, as we read once again, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created." So what does John see? <laughs> he sees a whole lot of things. And we're going to try to make sense of them. And I think as we do, we'll see the direction that God is pointing John. The first thing that he sees is a throne. And throne is an important image. It's an important thing that John sees and talks about. In fact, he brings up throne 47 times in the book of Revelation. That's one of the clues that tells us that this throne room vision is, is one of the key central ideas of the entire book. Everything else will kind of pull back to this idea of the throne of God and who is seated on the throne. Because not only does John see a throne, but he sees that someone is on the throne. But he doesn't even begin to try to describe 
what the one on the throne looks like. He just sees beauty and dazzling radiance. And so he says, the one on the throne has the appearance like precious gems. He's beautiful. He's radiant. He's so other. I can't even begin to describe what the one on the throne would look like other than that dazzling beauty beyond description. Now, in order to get the full sense of the throne room vision, we're going to look at all the prepositions. And you're like, I didn't think I came to English class this morning. No, we're going to see what was on the throne, what was from the throne, behind the throne, around the throne, and before the throne. So the one on the throne was beautiful beyond description. And then from the throne came lightning, thunder, and torches of fire. And these would once again be very familiar descriptions to the people of God. They understand that all of these things signal that the presence of God is here in its fullness. All the way back in the book of Exodus, at God's command, Moses gathers the people, the chosen people of Israel, around Mount Sinai, and they stand back, but then God's presence comes on the mountain in Exodus 19, verse 16, and see how similar it is. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Well, in Revelation 4, someone has been speaking to John with a voice like a trumpet. And then he sees the vision of this throne in which lightning and thunder are coming from the throne. This is the very presence of the holy, awe-inspiring God. Yes, it is his presence, but all of these things also symbolize God's judgment. And as we will continue to go through the book of Revelation, we will find that there are three uh, retellings or three cycles of God's wrath and righteous judgment poured out in the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. And at the end of each and every one of these seven pouring outs of God's wrath, we see that the end is lightning and thunder and the very presence of God. All of this is to give a picture that no one could deny of the incredible, awe-inspiring power that John is witnessing. The people trembled around Mount Sinai, and I know John felt the same way. And yet he continues to describe what he sees. And behind the throne, around and just behind, he saw a rainbow. A rainbow. Now, we don't encounter rainbows too often in Scripture, but when we do, they are significant. And we know that as we read the Bible, rainbow has always been and always will be the symbol of the covenant between God and Noah that he would never again destroy all of created life with a flood. This is a reminder from the very throne of God itself that this is God remembering this covenant, that he will not allow that to happen again, and that it is safe to approach the throne. And once again, we see how creation is still very present in the heavenly throne room. God is aware of creation. He is mindful of it. He is still aware and committed to that covenant he made with Noah all those thousands of years ago. And John is trying to describe what this rainbow looks like. And he says this rainbow looks like an emerald. Now, I've seen rainbows. And I've seen emeralds. And I have no idea how one could look like the other. (laughs) And so the one thing that I bring out from this is you get the sense that John is seeing something so other so amazing and beautiful. He can't even grasp it, much less find the right words to describe what he is seeing. And to be reminded of what we learned again last week, sometimes there is just mystery. Sometimes we can't get everything that John is trying to say because he doesn't even know how to say it. This rainbow is beautiful and it's a reminder of God's covenant with creation. Before the throne, 
then are the seven spirits in these seven torches of fire. And the seven spirits, seven is that number of completion. It's the fullness of the Holy Spirit always before the throne of God. And also before the throne, we encounter a sea of glass. One thing I'll try to do as we work through Revelation is let you know when there's not a lot of consensus and there's not a lot of, uh, of scholars or, or commentators who readily agree with what this sea of glass might represent here in God's throne room. But the best example or explanation that I have heard comes from Daryl Johnson in his book, Discipleship on the Edge. He uses a convincing argument that if we look through the rest of Scripture and especially the rest of Revelation, both of which are important ground rules for our interpretation, that the sea always speaks and represents chaos and forces that are opposed to the will of God. One very specific example is that in Revelation 13, it is out of the sea that the beast arises, this beast who will, who will oppose God's will. And so Daryl Johnson explains it this way, the sea is before God's throne, but it is completely still. It is crystal like glass. He says, before the throne, chaos is stilled and chaos is subdued. And so to a group of believers who would best describe the world as chaotic, John gets this glimpse of all the chaos completely like glass, a crystal sea before the throne. And yet even that is not the high point of this vision because around the throne is where all the action is happening, this action of worship that we read together and even joined in for a time. There are 24 other thrones and 24 elders sit on these thrones. Every time we encounter a number in Revelation, we should ask ourselves, what is significant about that number? And 24 is no different. 24 most likely represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. This is not a connection that I'm making lightly. If you, again, use the rest of Revelation, you'll look forward to Revelation 21. And as John is describing the vision of the new heaven and the new earth, he says that there are 12 gates, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and 12 foundations, which represent the 12 apostles of Christ. So when that connection is made for us in Revelation 21, then we see 24, plus 24, or 24 is 12 plus 12. The old covenant, the new covenant. Together, they represent the redeemed people of God. The 24 elders are the redeemed people of God, and they are worshiping God. And we are part of that number. We are part of the redeemed people of God. We have the opportunity to enter into worship in this way too. And then we have the four living creatures who are also part of this worship. Four is another number that's significant, and throughout Scripture, four represents creation. They talk about the four corners of the earth, or the four winds of the earth. Later on, four angels that go all over the earth. The number four represents creation, which should not surprise us because through the songs and through the rainbow, we know that creation is at the heart of this vision. And the four living creatures represent God's creation. This is further made true to us because all these living creatures resemble created beings. The lion and the ox, the eagle and the human. They represent God's animate creation. It also draws us to another um, another vision that was given to the prophet Ezekiel. And if you want to, in your own time, go and read all of Ezekiel 1. I would, I would encourage you to do that because there are so many similarities in the glimpse of the throne room that he receives as John receives. But for now, I want to read Ezekiel 1 verse 10 and we'll see some of the similarities with these living creatures. He's describing them. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. 
The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. And so when Ezekiel sees the throne room of God, he sees this creature with a human and lion and ox and eagle face. And the same thing that John sees in Revelation. And yet, they are also covered in eyes. And I wouldn't encourage you to think about this vision for too long because that's super gross. And I don't even know how he would be able to see all of them. But, but these four living creatures are covered in eyes. Covered in eyes, meaning that heaven sees what's going on in creation. Heaven is aware. God is enthroned in heaven, but he has his eyes on earth. He's not unaware of the hardship that his people face. He's not unaware of the cries for help that he receives from them. Heaven knows what is happening on earth. The Lord sees it all. And then these four living creatures and these 24 elders, which represent creation and God's redeemed people, are in constant worship of him. Constant worship of him with the songs that we've sang together, which again reminds us of another throne room vision in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6. And I'll read just an excerpt there. But again, we should be struck by the parallels, the similarities between what Ezekiel sees, what Isaiah sees, and what John sees, because they are given a very similar glimpse. Isaiah 6 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is worshipped because he has created. And then the 24 elders, at the moment of, of the living creatures proclaiming the song, fall down, cast down their crowns, and worship God because he has created. And all of this vision All of these pictures serve to remind us that the throne is the seat of ultimate power, authority, and control. And all of creation and all of God's people worship the one who lives forever, the Lord upon the throne. All of of these things are not as they seem because this worship is happening right now. God's authority and sovereignty on the throne is true right now, no matter what the world may seem like at the moment even when the world seems crazy. Especially when the world seems crazy, chaotic, and broken, God is on his throne. Amen? God is on his throne. Today, now, in this moment, all of us will be aware in some way of the tragedy that struck the Humboldt community on April 6, 2018, in which a, a bus carrying the Humboldt Broncos hockey team was, was in a tragic accident that killed 16 people. And then all of a sudden, not only was a community grieving at an unexplainable tragedy, but a nation was grieving. And then on TSN and Sportsnet, they had this memorial service, and then there was this, this chaplain. The chaplain of the Humboldt Broncos now got up in front of the nation. And what do you think he wanted everyone to know in the face of chaos and tragedy and brokenness? He reminded our country that God is on his throne. I have a few clips. I'll let him speak for himself. Where was God? That question has two answers. God is on the throne, and God is with the brokenhearted. 
We know that God is on the throne. Jesus walked this earth. He died. He was buried. He rose again. And it says in the scripture that he is now seated at the right hand of the Father in control of setting up our leaders, putting people in the place where they need to be at just the right time for just the right purpose, making sure the things line up according to his plan. I don't claim to understand how this seems like it's in God's control at all, but it is. He's still on the throne. He is still God. You know, I ask the question, as you look at God on the throne, it's easy to look at God from a distance. Uh, But the second part of that question is, of where is God, is that he's with us. I would do Darcy a a dishonor and a displeasure. I would do myself the same, and I would do... Um, anyone who's a Christian, if, if I tried to give you pat answers and here's a list of things you can do to feel better, you need Jesus. He's walked here. He's walked at first and death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't hold him. He's alive. And he sits at the right hand of God on the throne and he's in control. It doesn't feel like it, but he is. doesn't feel like it, but he is. Things are not always as they seem. And the glimpse of heaven we get is God on the throne in the face of the chaos of this world. And then we get the second vision, which opens with the one who is on the throne holding a scroll in Revelation 5. And this scroll is completely full of words in the back and the front, and it's sealed with seven seals, Anyone want to tell me what the number seven represents? Anyone want to tell me? Completeness. Completeness. This is God's complete what? Well, we have, we have to remember of, of what was just sung in Revelation 4.11. This is sung that, that God is worthy to be praised for he created, and he has a will for creation. And so we can faithfully understand that this scroll represents in some way God's will, desire, perfect, complete, fulfilled end for all of creation. What a wonderful thing to see. But there's a problem. As John watches, he sees that no one is worthy to open the scroll. No one is worthy to overcome this chaos and brokenness to bring God's plan to completion. And it breaks his heart. It seems so close. Everything seems so like victory is right at hand. God has ordained this. God is on his throne. Things are going poorly. But if only someone could open that scroll, if only God's will could be done. And no one is worthy. And John weeps at this. It breaks his heart. It feels like all has been for naught. Is the battle truly lost? Have the bad guys won? And then an elder comes over and gives him true words of hope. Revelation 5, verse 5. Weep no more. Behold, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is one who is worthy. There is one who can assure that this plan of God for all of creation will one day come complete. And it is the lion of Judah and the root of David. 
Both of these titles are messianic titles, readily understood by those especially of Jewish background. We get the line of Judah all the way back from Genesis 49.9, in which Jacob is blessing his children. He says Judah is like a lion's cub. So the line of Judah, the imagery comes from all the way back in Genesis. In Isaiah 11.1, it says there's a, a root or a shoot from the stump of Jesse, which is the, the father of David, the root of David. So both of these are messianic titles and claims. The lion, the Messiah, has conquered. That is what John hears. But what does he see? Every once in a while, actually fairly often in Revelation, John will hear one thing, but see something different. He hears that the lion has conquered. And what does he see? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The lion has conquered, and he turns around, and he finds a lamb violently slain. The lamb has conquered. The lamb has overcome. Not a lion, a lamb. This is the one who is worthy. This is the one who has overcome. And yes, it is a meek image of love and self-sacrifice. The lamb that was slain is Jesus upon the throne. Make no mistake. But the lamb didn't conquer because he was weak. No, no. The lamb had seven horns. Horns are the symbol of strength. And what does seven mean? Full, complete. This is the almighty lamb. The lamb had seven eyes, which represent knowledge and wisdom. The lamb wasn't foolish. What does seven mean? The lamb was incredibly wise and all-knowing. The lamb wasn't slain because he was weak or foolish. The lamb was slain because he knows where true power comes from, to overcome. And it might seem at odds with the world, and it might seem foolish to some, but of course it does. That the power of God and the wisdom of God, seven horns, seven eyes, would be considered foolish to men. We have to be drawn to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 and following. It'll be up on the screen for you. But listen to these words of Paul in light of the vision that John has given us today. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, the slain lamb, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, seven horns, and the wisdom of God, seven eyes. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do you want to know where true power lies? Do you know how you can overcome the world? It's through the way of the Lamb, ultimate self-sacrifice. That is how he conquered. The Lamb didn't use military might. Even though he was reinforced as the Messiah, he didn't come and conquer as the Messiah like many expected him to. He didn't use political influence to try to change the minds of those who were in charge. He didn't use extreme charisma to just 
to try to trick followers into doing what he said, that the lamb changed the world. He overcame. He was worthy to open those seals because he laid down his life. And he bled and died for you and me. That's where power comes from. That's how you conquer. That's how you overcome. And church, this means something to us. Because if we are to overcome the powers of darkness in the world today, then we need to follow the way of the lamb. We need to overcome in the way that Jesus has shown us true overcoming happens. Because Jesus truly conquered. There was this arrayed might of the Roman Empire and this dwindling Christian community. And then John is given this vision of a lamb that has overcome and it's meek and it's mild and it's foolish to some. But let's just say, okay, what has the course of history taught us? What, which one truly did overcome? The church of Jesus Christ or the Roman Empire? Which one truly overcame? We have the evidence we need to be assured of the truthfulness of this passage. And we need to overcome in the same way. Just a little while ago, and our neighbors to the south, Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court. And I never thought I'd see that day. And I am very thrilled for every single life of an unborn child that is saved. I am happy for everyone. I truly believe down from my head to my toes that every life is sacred. That is my stance. But I worry, I am concerned about the means in which this victory in that battle for life has been won. Because it's not done through the way of the Lamb, it's done through political influence. But what happens when the church loses that influence? What happens when the, 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 the law just gets turned back again? What happens when you go through legal channels is that now there's extreme opposition on another camp of people that are digging in their heels. So I will celebrate each and every life that is saved but I will look at the vision of the lamb that is slain and say there is another way to transform the world. And it doesn't have to come through the legal process. It doesn't have to come through political influence or might that the world describes as might and power. I truly believe that if we are to follow the way of the lamb and change this world, it means when we come across someone who is a young mother who is in an unwanted pregnancy and she has questions and concerns that we sit and that we listen and that we love, and we plug her into the resources that she needs, and then we help give her the support that she needs. And yes, the self-sacrificial love of the Lamb might mean you even think of adopting a child into your family. That's how the world has changed, not just through laws, but through love and complete self-sacrifice. Which, by the way, is something, this exact thing is what the earliest church was known for. And as citizens of a Roman Empire left their children out in the wild, they exposed them because they were weak, or they were uh, deficient, or they were female. They would expose these children. They were unwanted. They would throw them off bridges, and Christians would come, and they would gather them up, and they would raise them as their own. And why could they do that? Because the one who is conquered is the lamb who is slain. That's how the world changes. That's how God's will becomes complete. And truly, that's the the way that our eyes need to be looking, that Jesus, the lion and the lamb, is worthy to bring creation to its fulfillment. He takes the scroll and the four living creatures, all of creation, and the 24 elders, all the people of God, sing a new song in verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign. On earth. 
this is what God has done. This is what Jesus has done. He is worthy, and he's worthy to be praised by all of creation and all of God's people. But then there is a second praise song, and the circle is widened, and the angels join in the song, and they sing along with creation and the people of God. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The, the Lamb is now worthy of all that the God upon the throne is worthy of, glory, honor, and power. And the Lamb was standing in this vision in the middle of the elders, in the middle of the living creatures, in the middle of the throne. And just like in Revelation 1, when John described the Son of Man as the Ancient of Days, he is here reiterating that Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Slaughtered Lamb, comes from and stands in the very center of the being of the Almighty God. And then, yes, we come to that last worship song where the, um, the circle widens one more time, and now it's all of creation, over all of time, at the dawn of the new heaven and the new earth, in God's completed will for creation, singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and ever. God's will and plan for creation will come to completion. It is assured because of the slaughtered lamb. It is certainly part of what Jesus meant when he breathed his last and said, it is finished. It's done. It's accomplished. And nothing that happens in this world will be able to deter that final completion from happening. He is worthy. And so, church, as we read these words and think of this vision, our only response is to imitate the elders and the creatures. At the end of these three praise songs in Revelation 5, they fall down, they say, Amen, and they fall down and they worship. God is on the throne. The Lamb is worthy. We worship. Today, we are going to take communion. It's going to be our act of worship to remember the slaughtered Lamb that gave his life for us, that Jesus upon the throne would breathe his last, would show what true transforming power looks like and lay down his life for you and I. He is worthy of power, honor, and glory. He has assured that God will bring all of creation to its complete fulfillment, eternal worship without blemish, brokenness, or sorrow. Jesus accomplished this through the great power of unconditional love and pure self-sacrifice the way of the Lamb. What we're going to do this morning is that we're going to, just in one second, invite you to come forward and to receive the elements for communion. And what I'd like you to do is to come and to grab the cracker and to grab the cup and then to bring them back to your seat. And then once we finish singing the song that we're going to sing together, we will all partake of the elements together. So again, you can come forward when we start to sing and you can grab the elements and bring them back to your seat. Uh, at the same time, we're going to sing a song called He is Worthy. And I, I bet you you know exactly where we got this song from. It's going to be a great reminder of what we just read and what we learned from together. And so as you are able, when you come forward to grab your elements and when you return to your seat, I would invite you to sing along with this song. Especially in the verses, there's going to be a call and response. And so Emma, the worship leader, will call out and you can follow Shauna in response. And together, we are going to affirm, indeed, that the slaughtered lamb, Jesus Christ, is worthy. So would you stand? And as we begin to sing, as we begin to sing, I invite you to come forward, to grab the elements, to return to your seats, to sing and to reflect together of the worthiness of our Lord.
thank you once more for being with us here to worship. Uh, it's just wonderful uh, to see you all here and to learn with you. And I hope at the end of, of this service you will have, have realized what I meant when this became much more than a study and it became much more of a truth that I just need to grab onto. And so I, I hope that you can grab onto that glimpse of heaven. God is on his throne. The lamb is worthy. His blood is slain for you. And he is worthy of our praise. Can't wait till next Sunday. See you then. Thank you.